Captain Kirk. Fascinating. Well, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I thought. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, grazerites, and things to episode 104 of the Muppet Trek Podcast. I'm Jarman. And I'm Steve. We're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And, Jarman, what are those? Those are The Muppets and Star Trek. And we do one-to-one reviews, The Muppet Show and Star Trek The Next Generation. What? That's right. (laughs) The first debut episode of Next Generation. It's very exciting. That's right. And this week we have Muppet Show guest Brooke Shields and Next Generation episode Encounter at Farpoint 1 and 2. And we said last time, but Brooke Shields is not available on Disney+. Plus. But I had found it on YouTube in a couple places. They have it sold multiple parts, so you can find it there for free if you want. Yeah, I was able to find it a stork kind of driven site. Yeah, but YouTube's uh, but not my responsibility. <laughs> but what's uh, Brooke Shields up to this week? Yeah. Well, uh, oh wait, sorry, hold on. Who, who is, is Brooke, Brooke Shields? Shields person? Who the hell is she? <laughs> uh, well, she's a model and actress from films like Blue Lagoon. Uh, with a degree from Princeton, and she starred in her own show for four seasons. Suddenly, Susan. More recently, she's been doing voice work for animated series like uh, Mama Named Me Sheriff and Mr. Pickles. I never heard of any of these. <laughs> she's fun. doing a bunch of animated shows. Okay. Um, but what does, her audi- what does her audience know her from? She's sort of like an American icon. Yeah. Um, and she did that infamous gene commercial where they sexualized her at like 14 or 15. Yeah, that's just Lagoon, like being sexualized again. Like yeah. Like 16, it was, 17. It was... Yeah, it's a lot. So it was a different time, and somehow she survived it. And in there was the Muppet Show. That's right. <laughs> She's still a child during this phase. That's right. Uh, so what what happened this week on the show? Well, backstage, Fozzie thinks they're doing Peter Pan, and he thinks Peter Pan is the Wizard of Oz. So he's dressed up like the the Tin Woodsman. Piggy wants to play Alice, but she's mad she has to play the Queen of Hearts. Gonzo refuses to go on because Brooke is huge, and she's literally giant. Uh, Bunsen Honeydew helps to shrink her back down to size, but she shrinks too far and ends up tiny. Elsewhere backstage, Fozzie is bummed out about how things are going, and Dr. Teeth tries to cheer him up, and there's like a medley of songs about smiling, and more and more backstage characters join in. And uh, Kermit is afraid of stepping on Brooke Shields because she's wandering around somewhere so small, but then Piggy then jokes about crushing her to death. It's pretty dark. On stage this week, what the audience saw, well, the whole show is themed around Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Brooke is Alice. She follows the rabbit down the hole and meets a bevy of strange characters on the way down. And she s- sings a song called uh, I'm Falling. Uh, and she really can't sing. And it's real, real yeah. good bad. Uh, Alice then encounters the caterpillar, played by Floyd Pepper, uh, who advises her to eat mushrooms and grow. And she becomes giant. Uh, Humpty Dumpty then hits the stage and he sings, these are the yokes, folks, in which it's nonstop cheesy egg jokes and puns until Humpty Dumpty dies <laughs> and then is further crushed to death by a horse. Dark. Kermit introduces the Jabberwocky and uh, Scooter hits the stage as a brave young man seeking a terrifying beast. He beheads it and brings it home. And they admit that it's the weirdest thing that they've done on the show. Uh, Scooter then introduces the trial scene, but Brooke is missing. The judge is Marvin Suggs. Uh, he presides and the judge beats people with his hammer and like breaks, breaks Kermit's hand at one point and then <laughs> makes people cry in pain. 
Um, finally, we have the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. The banter is crazy. Tweedledee and Tweedledum show up at Statler and Waldorf, and the jokes just roll on and on and on. Kermit tries to shut it down, but they need a song, and it's Fozzie's time to shine. He jumps in and leads the cast, and we're off to see the wizard from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Uh, Kermit thanks Brooke one last time and recognizes her as the youngest host of the show that they've ever had. Uh, Fozzie tries to get his moment one more time, and that is what we call the Muppet Show. So, Jarman, what did you think of this week's episode with Brooke Shields? Uh, a lot came out recently about Brooke Shields, and she's becoming very public about her childhood and how she was forced into a lot of situations that were really bad and unfortunate. So it was kind of sad and bittersweet seeing her as this age, um, and she looks kind of just so timid and shy and sweet and kind and it's just kind of sad but she did a really good job and i did know that she wasn't the best singer so they tried to not focus on that too much um but she was really good at her part and she played alice really well um they had some awesome scenes that falling sequence was really cool when she's falling and they're all the muppets are around her singing and stuff uh the jabberwocky scene was hilarious and really well done um i thought it was just a really fun episode great costumes fun songs Great scene design and effects. They use a lot of a lot of the Muppets are involved. Uh, it kind of felt like a mini Muppet movie to me. I don't know because a lot of the movies are see that. themed around these stories, you know. So it kind of felt like that, minus the cameos. Um, so yeah, we didn't have the regular skits, but we had a lot of these other stories to go along with it, and everyone was involved. We finally have more Miss Piggy. I've had her in a while. Yeah, um, that's right. She'd been gone for a hot minute. Yeah. Well, this is definitely one of my top episodes for the season so far, I think. And it's just sad that it's not on Disney Plus for people to see it because I think it's yeah. actually pretty good. No, I, I agree with a lot of your points. Anytime they do like a full show theme where everything is one thing, yeah. in this case, Alice in Wonderland, it typically focuses them in a really good way. Um, some the, the Maybe my issue was that I you're right. They didn't have any of the normal sketches, but they did the one thing where Dr. Bunsen Honeydew did like a mini Muppet Labs to That's shrink true. her down. I wish they could have found more opportunities for that. I agree. They could have done to that. integrate some of the regular sketches into what was happening. It would have kicked it up to the next level. Um, but otherwise, it was a very full episode. Like, as I was going through the summary, I was like, man, they put a lot in here. Even Statler and Waldorf being Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Like, that was pretty great. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> um, so good full episode, you know, towards the top of the heap for season five, certainly. That being said, we're not that far in. So who knows where it would end up? That's true. And not that she was the best host in the world, but she was integrated very well with the Muppets yes, throughout she was, the whole episode. Definitely. So that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so what kind of uh, song information do we have for this Music episode? while falling. It was a song by not the Ray Charles you're thinking of, but rather the late season musical consultant for the Muppet show, Ray Charles. Uh-huh. Uh, these are the Yokes folks, also by not the Ray Charles you're thinking of. Uh, he actually got looped in with the Muppets after he did the music for the 1979 John Denver and the Muppets A Christmas Together. Mm. That's when Ray Charles came into their life. And he actually won uh, two Emmys and was later a musical consultant for the Kennedy Center Honors on PBS. Oh, wow. Um, when You're Smiling by Shay Fisher and Goodwin. Uh, famous recording by Louis Armstrong, uh, Larry Shea in the 30s got hired by MGM as their musical director. And so he's the guy who hired Bing Crosby for his first movie at a rate of $50 a day. Oh, and that's a Trek connection right there. Is it? Yeah, because Bing Crosby is uh, uh, 
Denise Crosby's father, and he's she plays Tasha Yar in the first episode of Encounter at Farpoint. Bam! There we go. <laughs> Shrek Connection didn't even know. There you go. Uh, Smiles by J. Will Callahan. Uh, he is most known for writing an incredibly racist song uh, with a terrible title called from 1970 called Ching Chong. Oh, no. <laughs> that is what he is most known for. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, Put on a Happy Face by Charles Strauss, uh, introduced by the one and only Dick Van Dyke in the very original 1960 Broadway production of Bye Bye Birdie. Mm. Uh, My Mammy, uh, sung briefly by Gonzo, by Walter Donaldson. He's Brooklyn-born in 1893, and he is buried in an unmarked grave at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Brooklyn. Mammy. I just thought that the the unmarked grave part was real weird. That's really sad. (laughs) Happy Days Are Here Again by Egger and Yellen. Uh, This was actually the campaign song for uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In his 1932 presidential election. Huh. Uh, Lady of Spain, uh, played by Marvin Zuggs and previously played by Marvin Zuggs on the Muppet phone. It was from season one during the Rita Morena episode. Mm. And we're off to see The Wizard by Harold Allen uh, from The Wizard of Oz, of course. And he also wrote Lydia, the Tattooed Lady, which Kermit performed once again back in season one on the Connie Stevens episode. Wow. Some repeats here. Yeah, that's right. So, John, what did you think was the best Muppeteering moment this week? I have to give it to the Falling song. Uh, it was pretty crazy. They mixed that black screen effect they use a lot um, with just Muppets somehow looking like they're falling past her. Uh, she's, like, suspended by wires like she's falling the whole time. And they pass by and they sing a few phrases and they go up and then another one comes by. I'm like, that must have been a huge challenge. And it's very impressive to coordinate all that. So, I think that was awesome. Absolutely. Um, I agree that was that was a good effect. I ended up giving it to Scooter, specifically in the Jabberwocky scene. Ah, yes. Because he had to carry the whole middle of that. Richard Hunt did an amazing job selling it. And while he was not on stage alone, it was it was Scooter's performance that really sold the whole thing. So That's I had to true. give it to Scooter slash the Jabberwock. It was a good Scooter episode. It's true. It was great scooter episode. I also only realized after last episode that the guy who always taking the tickets or asking who people are in the beginning of the episode, that that's Scooter's dad he's been talking about forever. <laughs> I didn't no. realize that until like two episodes ago. He, said he, he talks and he's about like, he's like, he hey, talks dad, about his <laughs> uncle. Really? No, every his that, that character's name is Pops. But he came in and he's like, hey, dad, or or my uncle or is the uncle owns owns the theater. Is that what he says? Yeah, his uncle, but his uncle is J.P. Gross, who we met back in oh season one, maybe. Then Pops maybe is his dad. Uh, okay, well, I gotta look that up. Yeah, I was like really surprised. I was like, oh, I had no idea. Because one of them is a white guy, and Scooter's orange. <laughs> hey, he could be. I looked that up. That's true. Love has no boundaries. Uh, so what happened on this week's first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? Oh, the infamous and famous Encounter at Farpoint, uh, the pilot episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, the Enterprise-D is taking its maiden voyage to the planet Deneb-4 to open relations with the Bandy people, who have some kind of mysterious power to create matter fast enough to create a wondrous Farpoint station on their planet, which seems to cater to the needs of any of its visitors. So the Federation's obviously interested in this. They send their flagship, the Enterprise, to go check it out for its maiden voyage. Uh, the Enterprise only has part of its crew, though, cause it's starting off. Um, and Picard is to meet the rest of them on Deneb 4, including Riker, Geordi, Beverly, and Wesley Crusher. Uh, and Data, Troy, Worf, and Tasha Yar are already on board. 
And on the way, though, they are stopped in their tracks and trapped by a seemingly omnipotent being who calls himself Q. And he says he is going to put humanity on trial to see if they are worthy to exist and travel the galaxy. Where have we seen this before? As part of their test, they are to continue their current mission, which Q assures them will be more interesting than they think. And he will judge them based on how they carry it out. Meanwhile, on Deneb 4, suspicions are aroused because Riker notices its leader, Groppler Zorn, is kind of a weird guy. And that the station seems to be able to create items from thin air that people want. And Riker tells Beverly about this, so they decide to investigate. They can't seem to figure out what this immense power must be that powers the station. But then the Enterprise arrives, and Riker and Picard have their first meeting, which is really cool. As well as Riker and Data, which in the, the holodeck, which is a lot of fun. And then Riker's introduced to Deanna Troy, but Picard sees that they already know each other, and it's insinuated that they used to be lovers. Amzadi, can you hear me, Amzadi? <laughs> but back to the mission at hand. Uh, Troy, who's an empath, uh, as the beta half betazoid, she can sense great suffering from a powerful mind somewhere on Farpoint Station, and they track it to the caverns below the station. And Zorn, he won't tell them anything as an explanation, so they investigate further. And suddenly, an, a large unknown craft approaches the station in space and begins to fire at the villages below around the station, and it abducts a grappler Zorn from his uh, office through a beam. And Picard's about to fire upon the strange ship, and Q appears again, saying, oh, of course, the humans would immediately go for the violent option. So Picard instead sends an away team to the strange ship. And strangely, the ship is very similar to the caverns below the Farpoint Station that they're investigating. And they find Zorn on the ship, and they beam him back to the Enterprise. But suddenly, the ship reveals itself to actually be a huge jellyfish space creature. And after interrogating Zorn, they figure out that the Farpoint Station is actually being powered by, that, by the lover of the strange space creature in space. And Zorn has basically imprisoned it, feeding, the, only, feeding it energy only so long as it creates everything for him. So it's being tortured as it creates things for people. And the creature in orbit is its lover, and it wants it freed. So Picard has the Enterprise fire an energy beam into the being below, feeding it enough so it can free itself. And Q reluctantly lets the Enterprise go, saying they have passed their test for now, but that he will be back and they will see him again. And that is Encounter at Farpoint. Everyone's met each other, and we're starting the races. So what do you think of this episode, Steve? Um, so some things I liked, and this is sort of like an overall statement. Everything about this episode made a statement about what this show would be that the original series was not. Mm -hmm. Already they establish you're going to see more of the ship than ever before. You're going to see more of life on the ship than ever before. Uh, you were going to see relationships between characters developed in a way that the original series just couldn't or didn't. Um. I like that they still kept a classic premise of like a benevolent being testing humanity, but they faced it head on. Like they knew they were in a test. Um, Picard is a very different captain than Kirk. Mm -hmm. The holodeck is going to unlock all sorts of story elements not possible before. Uh, even the score is going to drive the action and the pace of what you're watching. All these were like these huge statements that were made throughout the episode making sure really you know set, from the that really set the tone yeah yeah um and then i loved the big premise meeting the queue going on trial glimpses into the lore of like the pre-starfleet earth i love all that stuff we got to see that the ship can now separate that was cool 
We got some good character intros. We got to see fucking Bones. That's right. DeForest Kelly. Who like shows up, blesses Data as the new Spock, and then leaves on an epic quote of, uh, you treat her like a lady and she'll always bring you home. <laughs> good old Bones. Uh, great callback with uh, Deanna Troy going, pain, pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my God. The rock creature. <laughs> I loved the Ferengi name drop without getting too far into it to give you a peek at like a wider political struggle that's going on. Yeah. Or wider tensions. Uh, the ladies love Riker. I just wrote that down because that was so funny. <laughs> Her checking out his ass when he walks away, that random woman on the ship. <laughs> yeah. Um, I loved old man Picard. Go ahead, look around, Wesley, but don't touch anything. <laughs> Help me escape um, from children. I don't, I don't like being around children. <laughs> Um, and then just to end it off with a purple space jellyfish, like who to thunk, <laughs> who to thunk where that was, where it was going to end up. Some things I struggled with off the bat, this episode really suffers from some pacing issues. Mm-hmm. So you get this huge opening with Q and they're in the middle of this test and then they like slow down to meet the new crew and we get these character moments and that was a bit jarring. And then there's big, more big plot things that happen. And then Picard stops what he's doing to apologize to Crusher for the way he talked. They were just, for the mounting tension, they they took this time for these character moments that felt like there was no urgency right. to what was going on. They just had the time to stop and talk. Um, and I think Riker and Troy was laid on way too thick in that, like, any rational captain. So right at the beginning, they have that moment and then the, them and Picard get into uh, an elevator and they're just like staring at each other longingly. She's almost in tears. And I feel like any rational captain would see this and be like, why are you staring at each other? <laughs> what is happening? Is this going to be a problem? <laughs> like, but it just felt too much, like so much that who wouldn't notice and like be concerned. It was like soap opera acting at that point. Right. It was soap opera acting. Um, that being said, they do try to make it clear that Deanna Troy like feels bigger than humans. Like, you know, they, they <laughs> try to make all that clear. So I get it, but it felt weird. Um, but overall, I think a really strong opening to like what we can expect from Star Trek, the next generation. Yeah. And I think going off what you said, it kind of brings in some of this trivia I had, which was that originally Gene Roddenberry was assigned um, he assigned this pilot script solely to DC Fontana, who is a big writer in the original series. Um, and she wrote the whole planet s- sequence, Farpoint, all this business. There was no cue whatsoever. And so there was plenty of time to have not that urgency. So you could introduce all the characters. It made sense. It, w- it was paced regularly. It was going to be one hour of television. Um, and then all of a sudden, Gene Roddenberry tells DC Fontana that, oh, they want me to rewrite it. And it's not my choice. They want me to, this Paramount wants me to rewrite it. She's like, okay. So he takes the script, adds the whole Q element to it, claims that they also said it needed to be two hours long. And so he basically took her script, this one story and shoehorned in two stories into this one episode. So that's kind of why. And they weren't even written as two 40 minute episodes because the Q thing was only 30 minutes. Yeah. So if you were watching this on TV, it would have been 30 minutes of one episode, 10 minutes of the second episode, basically, and then the rest of the second episode the next week. Yeah, it just basically the Q thing. I like that it's there because it sets up so much for the future, but it could have been episode two all about this Q thing happening. Yeah, they didn't need the trial and all this jazz. 
So that was my only complaint about the episode. I feel like it shoehorns it a lot, like almost too much into two episodes. Like the saucer separation was took forever and I don't think we needed that necessarily. But basically it was it was still a lot of fun seeing all the characters meet each other, especially after I've seen all the whole series and I've just finished watching Picard, the sequel series, and um so I'd love seeing them meet for the first time yet again. Had you seen this episode before, Steven? Probably at some point, but we're talking in syndication or in bits and pieces. Right. A decade or more ago. Well, I'm excited for you to see the rest of it. But uh, yeah, I think there are better episodes in season one, probably. But this there's also much worse ones. So <laughs> just wait, because there's all the worst episodes of Next Generation are in the first season. Um, and it just gets better from there. So that's what we have to look forward well, to. Well, now I got something to look forward to. Yeah, exactly. So for trivia, uh, this marks the final appearance of DeForest Kelly. Um, final television appearance for of him before his death. In 1999, because um, this film was filmed in 1987, but he didn't do anything until after that, until he died in 99. Um, at Farpoint, wow. Dr. Crusher decides to purchase a bolt of fabric and asks the bandy to charge it to her account on the Enterprise, making this one of the very, very rare references to any sort of money being used in the Federation. Uh, you'll never really hear that again. That was kind of a pilot thing they messed up and kind of just didn't do it again. Um Apparently, at some point during this mission, Jordy LaForge tells Data a joke, uh, which the humorless android did not get until years later when he activated his emotion chip during the events of Star Trek Generations. Because in that movie, he mentions the encounter uh, the Farpoint Station when Jordy told a joke, but we don't actually see that joke on screen, but it's mentioned in Generations years later. Hmm. Uh, Will Wheaton noted that during the filming, most of the cast didn't believe that the series would last more than a year. Uh, Patrick Stewart even admitted that he didn't bother to unpack his suitcase for the first few months because <laughs> he's like, this is not going to last. Um, the main engineering set was built at the last minute. Uh, that's why it appears twice, despite nothing of note taking place in it. And this is because Gene Roddenberry was apparently told by the studio that if the set was not built for the pilot, it would never be built. So they had to build it for the pilot. Otherwise, they wouldn't get the money to do it. Uh Q was created in the second storyline, uh, as we mentioned. I already got that point out. Um, and sections of the set constructed for the Bird of Prey in Star Trek IV, uh, the Voyage Home, the, the whale movie, were reused for Groppler Zorn's office. Uh, specifically, the hallway outside of Zorn's office was a reused section of the Klingon Bird of Prey's hallway. And the three yellow lights behind Zorn's desk were reused from the Bird of Prey's transporter room. So they saved that set from 86 and filmed this in 87. So they still had it on, on hand. <laughs> nice. So, Steve, what are our Trek Connection Muppet Connections this time? Well, let's take a... Oh, you me get to the right note. Trek Connections. Uh, Delancey, John Delancey, famously performs a voice on My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Yes. As does a uh, very popular voice actress, Tara Strong, who uh, also played the voice of Dot on the short-lived Dog City animated series from Jim Henson. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Um, also, John Delancey played the role of a doctor in the terrible-looking movie called Buttons, A Christmas Tale. <laughs> the cast of that movie was led by Dick Van Dyke, who in 1979 co-hosted the TV special The Muppets Go Hollywood, a celebration of the release of the Muppet movie. Oh, we'll have to watch that. Delancey in a movie with Dick Van Dyke, who hosted with the Muppets. Bam. Bam. 
Well, basically the same episode. So I, I mean, they are surprised when I'm more connections because uh, both both feature transfer sudden transformations. Alice mm. changing size and Q doing multiple costume changes. Oh, yes. Both episodes have our characters transported to what seems like another dimension. The Wonderland and the Muppets and uh, the Q courtroom in Star Trek. I had something similar. Both feature a bright eyed youth exploring a fake reality. Wesley Crusher in the holodeck and Brooke Shields in, in Wonderland. Oh, I like it. I like it. Both have a courtroom scene. Oh, you're right. <laughs> it's actually true. <laughs> uh, both feature random endings. Alice in Wonderland ending with a song from The Wizard of Oz and Star Trek The Next Generation with Space Jellyfish. Space Jellyfish. <laughs> uh, oh, what's that noise? Transporter malfunction. Transporter malfunction. Okay, it's part of the show. We transport one of the characters to the other episode and vice versa and see what happens. So what you got for us, Steve? Uh, this week from Trek to Muppets, I'm going to bring over Wesley Crusher and replace Brooke Shields and do Alice in Wonderland, but with an overly intelligent and logical child, just destroying logical loopholes and moving through obstacles with ease. That's funny because uh, my Muppets of Star Trek, I have Brooke Shields as her Alice character taking the place of Wesley Crusher. Because she did the same sense of wonder on the Enterprise that Wesley does. Like, look at all this beautiful lights. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, up as to Trek, I'm going to bring over Scooter to do the Jabberwocky sketch in Farpoint Station. But he's the only one they need because as he would say it, all the crazy creatures would be generated ah. and rendered in real time by the, the sad, pained ship alien. Pain! Pain! <laughs> Uh, Star Trek to Muppets, I'd have Q transport over to take the place of Gonzo because I think he'd make an excellent Mad Hatter. I think that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Get on board with that. Yep. And already, that's a quick one. That brings us to the end of episode 104 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next time for the Muppet Show with special guest Glenda Jackson. And next generation episode, The Naked Now. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us, live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 